Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Crew. And this time we have uh, the amazing writer, director, producer, actor, uh, Tom McLaughlin. You forgot rock and roller. And rock star. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, you know, I often talk about my love for Chapman University and so many of the great people I've worked with. And, uh, um, you know, it's been made, it occurred to me that. You know, we should bring Tom McLaughlin in here and, and really talk about, you know, who he is because you've inspired so many students and you've uh, had such a great film history that, you know, we're really honored to have you in today and kind of hear, you know, about your your career, uh, your filmmaking career and also your thoughts on uh, how filmmaking has evolved from, you know, your roots in filmmaking to present day where you're, you know, still very much in the weeds with, you know, building out new filmmaking processes and working with up and coming filmmakers to really de help develop them and mm -hmm. kind of look towards the future. All right. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I saw that you worked on um, recently is uh, Rocksteady Row. Yeah. Which uh, I we had the film Funny Story at Slamdance in 2018, and Rocksteady Row was without question, you know, the talk of Slamdance then, and you know, um, just amazing group of filmmakers and amazing script, amazing story, yeah, sure and was. what a what a cool. How'd you um, end up getting involved in in that film? Well, interesting. There was a number of of students that were uh, not actually my students, but got involved with me when Trevor Stevens did a music video of my group, The Sloss. So a lot of them uh, were kind of part of that crew. Many of them didn't even realize that I was a you know teaching professor at the school. You know, uh, they'd heard the name but hadn't seen me. I don't know how they couldn't have seen me. I stand out like a sore thumb with the way I look, but. Um, you know, it was this kind of thing where I got onto the set and it's like, you know, oh yeah, shoot, okay. And it was Trevor basically who said, uh, you know, I'd love to have you do a, do a role in this thing. So they, they actually flew me up, which was, you know, really amazing. And I got to get on the set and just sit back and just basically be the walking, talking prop. You know, the actor that, you know, just where you want me, you know, what time's lunch and, uh, you know, what hotel am I staying at? And I just wanted to kind of stand back and, and be amazed by watching how talented, how inspiring, you know, it was to watch a, a, you know, a young group of filmmakers, just everybody kind of taking on one another's roles and the, you know, the producing unit. I mean, everybody had such passion for what they were doing. And for me, it was great fun to just not have the responsibility of, you know, that these were not like students that I had to give a grade to, or this was not anything that I had to sweat about in terms of the production. I could just kind of come in there and play, which is one of the great joys of being an actor. But it was a level of um, caring and uh, passion that was just incredible to, to be a part of. And then as the show kind of went on, Trevor kept kind of giving me more and more things to do, you know, in the show. And the next thing I know, I'm narrating, you know, the thing. And then kind of when they did reshoots, did uh, another shot to actually end the film with a, a kind of ironic twist that my character is involved with. So I got to be actually far more active in it than I ever expected. And, you know, it was just wonderful to go to the to premiere. They, did a, they had a premiere at Arclight, you know, which was just, you know, I sat there going, now this is thrilling. And it's... 
it's so wonderful to see how the next generation is going through the same stuff that you know I did I don't know how many years ago and you sort of are a part of it but it's theirs yet you can kind of share in it which as a director I kind of learned that years ago that it's our film you know there's many people that are involved with it it's not like you're working for me it's like you're working for this film that hopefully you care about and they certainly cared um, yeah you know I'm, that's got to be a uh, a cool feeling to be on set with uh, former students and sort of uh, have the opportunity to build a whole new relationship with them, a professional relationship with them, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm it seems like throughout the process of just being on set, you guys really developed a new dynamic, and uh, it was sort of a new chance to uh, to collaborate with. Uh, with students who you previously had a different relationship with. Yeah, it, it was a blessing. Uh, I don't know how many other professors get that, you know, that second aspect to, to the job. Um, you know, certainly I love to watch things that develop kind of, you know, from the time they pitch the story to the script, you know, through the whole process of the production classes and then seeing what happens at the end. Um, but this was like a very different thing because it was their baby and I was just, you know, one of the clogs in the wheel. But it was, uh, it was just exciting to be part of something that was, you know, ended up being so successful and deservedly so. It must have been really exciting just to see students really succeeding yeah. on set, just yeah. kicking ass because, I mean, it's a great movie. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. well let's, let's talk about uh, great movies. So let's get right to the chase. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Let's start from the beginning. (laughs) Rosebud. (laughs) Um, So Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. I mean, that is so cool that I have the the writer-director in the the room today. I'm humbled. Uh, You know, as a kid growing up, that was definitely like one of the the most exciting films that I'd ever seen at that point. What's the backstory in terms of like uh, getting into the business and, and gearing towards horror and you know the I guess fast track on how you ended up being the getting involved in the franchise? Well, let me I'll give you a little bit back back you know story on all that. Um, kind of also speaks to film school. Uh, my father came out to Los Angeles to go to UCLA. I'm, I'm sorry to USC. Same thing. Same thing, yeah. Uh, number one, number two. Um, but it, and he became a film student in the late 40s. Uh, Conrad Hall, the, the cinematographer, was one of the guys in that particular class. But when he graduated, and I th- think it was 48, 49, nobody wanted to, you know, have a film student do anything. It was, like, just unheard of in this business. Like, you studied it? No. You, you get on a set and you learn, or your uncle's in the business, or whatever. So I basically grew up with his dream, and living in Culver City, you know, I had the whole back lot of MGM to play on on the weekends and would take a camera up there from the time I was about seven and, you know, make these little movies with my friends, you know, but had these great sets to do it on. So the dream started very early, and, and I was very excited about that. I also had a great affinity for horror movies, and particularly like the Hammer horror movies, the Edgar Allan Poe movies that Roger Corman was doing. All those things somehow really spoke to the dark side of my personality. And then rock and roll hit, and that kind of took me away from all that. And then when I left rock and roll, went into studying mime with Marcel Marceau in Paris when I was 19, I went down into the catacombs to check out what that felt like. And that inspired 
my first horror movie, One Dark Night. And that's a very kind of a gothic horror story done on a very, very low budget. And that found its way to Paramount about two, three years later. And that's kind of where the Friday the 13th happened, is that they said they wanted somebody to come in and kind of do something different with the franchise because they felt that things had gone wrong on part five because it wasn't Jason that was the killer and the audience was a little upset. So instead of waiting two years for the next Friday, they said, we're doing this within a year, try to get that audience back. So I was very, very blessed to have like almost total creative control. All they basically said is bring back Jason and if you can do comedy, don't make fun of him. And I said, no, I do not want to make fun of him. I want to keep him the monster, but I want to have a sense of humor about it. This is part six for crying out loud. I want to have a little satire with it. So I didn't know how the fans were going to respond to that. And much to my shock, here we are 33 years later and... It has as big a following, if not bigger, than ever before. So many people actually discovered it, you know. I just, yeah, I just remember as a kid, you know, Jason, uh, the part six. You don't, you think, oh, it's a part six. <laughs> but it really reinvigorated the franchise. I mean, it really, like, launched into something much bigger than anyone had anticipated, you know. And, and that must have been, you know... Yeah, Super I just exciting. approached it as, as a real movie. I mean, in that I wanted it to look slick. I wanted it to feel like a, a real movie movie, you know, that had, you know, things in it that not, not just about, you know, setting up a character to kill them. Try to have an agenda. You know, the lead actor, you know, had an agenda, you know, through the whole thing. Jason had an agenda. You know, all the characters, hopefully you liked and did not want to see them die and that they made you laugh along the way by, you know, certain you know, character things or witty one-liners. I mean, things that I kind of pulled from my love of the movies of the 30s and 40s, the mm -hmm. comedies, you know, that wise-ass, you know, dialogue. So I put all those things into it having no idea if this was going to fly with an audience. And unfortunately, because of Part 5, you know, we didn't open as big as some of the Fridays because there was a great, you know, you know downer over the fact of, what, is this going to be somebody else and not, not Jason this time, or what? So I felt like, well, I'll go in, fingers crossed, and much to all of our shock, Paramount included, was we actually got good reviews. Um, you know, the critics said you can't hate something that's making fun of itself, you know. It, you know, yes, there's the mandatory, you know, number of kills in there, but, you know, it felt more like a movie, and it took itself, you know, not so seriously. And it was, it's been over the years that it's just kind of continued to build this audience of gee, we really love that one because Jason now is a monster, which, of course, what yeah. I wanted to do with him is make him an unstoppable, you can't kill something that's already dead. And, you know, we, I never thought there'd be six more after mine. You know, it's just, you know, incredible that it's gone on this long. So you didn't face much, uh, op many obstacles from the studio when taking it this direction. They were generally supportive and encouraging you to, to kind of carry on this in this direction. Yeah, do something, yeah, do something different, bring a different style to it. Um, as the story goes, and if, you know, anybody wants to look it up on uh, YouTube under uh, Legends Never Die, um, the, uh, Hollywood Forever, you'll see that I actually wrote the script in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. You know, wrote the treatment there first, just sort of because that's who I am. You know, I like to... <laughs> Paramount was on the other side of the wall, and I thought, okay, there's where I'm going to do it. Here's Literally. where I'm going to write it. And everything that was in that treatment, you know, all ended up, you know, in, in the movie. They just basically went, great, let's go. And uh, so it was 
really terrific. So, so you put together. So they, so they told you they were interested in 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 bringing you on uh, as the writer director for the new film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you put together a treatment and pitched to them, and upon showing that to them, they said, "Great, let's go make a movie." Yeah. Oh my God! It seems you know what? That's what I feel like in Hollywood when things are just like meant to be. Yeah. It just happens so like you know like it was meant to be. It's a blessing. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't happen often. And it no. when I talk to people now, it's like you know, really, you didn't have like forty people all like you know peeing on the tree to mark their territory. I said I was really lucky. I just happened to be in there at a time when they were open. Somebody come in there and show us, you know, another way to do this. And it, you know, that kind of trust means everything you know as a filmmaker yeah and still you know it was a low budget and you know obviously you want to hear tales from the crew i mean i i had a production manager who had done halloween and um, a couple of other horror movies and uh i found out that you know he would get a bonus if he could bring this thing under budget so there are many days i'd show up on the script and it's like where's my crane oh (laughs) you know what this other company came in to Atlanta because we were shooting in Georgia and they grabbed it. So I'm so sorry. You know, you just have to figure out something else. Wait a minute. What happened to the Steadicam today? You know, oh, jeez. You know, and now it's the, this constant, you know, having to keep dealing with the fact that, you know, you have that the production restraints and even worse, you know, somebody that was motivated by, you know, getting a little extra. So, of course, he was not. And so, unfortunately, a lot of production managers aren't the faves of the of the crew because it's all about you know saving money and not spending money and I at the same time had only done one other movie extremely low budget so I was like kind of used to the fact that okay I'm not going to get everything I want but I really wanted this thing to feel big and have a you know a real sense of production about it so you know the the twist was at the end uh, after we finished editing it we showed it to an audience at Paramount and they went crazy I mean it was like you know like a concert rock concert you could not hear the dialogue you could hear nothing from the crowd they're yelling their enthusiasm and things frank mancuso the junior who was the uh, producer came up to me after the screen and he goes it went great we need three more kills i said what I said yeah we need three more kills than this i get i gave you 13 is not enough it's like no no we, want, we need to you need to figure out how to get three more in there i said you could get that from that and he goes yeah i go Okay, you know, but I thought we, you know, went over budget. He goes, no, no, you're way under budget. <laughs> so that all this money was there to go off and, you know, shoot, you know, three more kills that we did in, in Franklin Canyon here in Los Angeles. So, you know, that, you know, the guy did his job, you know, <laughs> had, had this little benefit at the end of the whole thing. So it's, it's always been that way where you're, you're always trying to get more up there and they're trying to say, how can we do it for less and don't go over, you know, 12 hours and all those things. But of all the shows that I was on uh, over the years, this was the most fun because we were all in our mid to late 20s and there was such a enthusiasm to get out there and just, you know, have fun with this thing. And it was grueling, you know, we were doing six day weeks, you know, oh, wow. nights. So, um, Sunday nights was the night where we weren't working. So we'd go to Atlanta and go to clubs and dance and party and then go back to work, you know, Monday evening again. So it was a great experience all, all around. I can't say anything negative and we're all still friends, all the cast and many of the crew members. Now did the, uh, the crew that you brought on, um, were they part of the existing franchise or were you able to bring on an entirely new crew? All, all new. Yeah. And how did you go about, you know, assembling this crew? 
uh, interviews in Los Angeles, you know, finding people that seemed like, you know, were kindred spirits with stuff, or Frank said, you know, there was somebody that he heard was good, and, you know, I trusted, obviously, his expertise, because, you know, he had been doing a number of these now. Uh-huh. So, it, you know, it was... It was me having to basically say, you know, well, you bring in the people that you know, I'll bring in the people that I know, but I didn't have a huge pool to pull from yet. It, so- it sounds like a, a real benefit to the film was the fact that you're you're one of these, like, gem directors where you're just a, a really easygoing guy, kind of humbled, but you know exactly what you want and how you're going to achieve it. So whatever is thrown at you, it sounds like, you say, all right, they're going to take the crane away. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's what we can do without the crane. And it's like, I think, I think there's a, such a testament to like uh, fantastic directors that, that are able to really work with, you know, what they have yeah. and have a positive, you know, solution oriented attitude. And, uh, you know, cause any other way, it's really, you know, you can get eaten alive by some of these obstacles. Yeah, it's, it's, and I don't know why there is some law of the universe that when you have to make a compromise, sometimes it just ends up really being for the better, even though you can't see it at the time. All you're thinking about is, but I wanted this, and now i got to do it this way. But somehow when you put it together, you go, you know what, this is better. I don't know why, it just is. And That's I, always like the magic of filmmaking, the yeah. unexplainable is, it is. is finding those solutions on set. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's cool when you have a really good, you know, crew that can ha- become like a collective mind to figure that solution. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, some of the best parts of, you know, filmmaking itself. Um, and it seems like you were, you're kind of a natural in, in creating that tone on set and, and building up that uh, collaborative kind of like mind and really going out and making something great and you, you know... From from doing Jason, where did you kind of go from there? And once you kind of had that experience, what did, what did you, you well, know, expand the, on? Because of of the reaction that that the movie got, and you know the the fact that you know Frank really kind of liked the whole process and the way I worked. You know, I was offered, of course, the next Friday the Thirteenth, um, and he said, "What do you you have any ideas for that?" And I go, "You know what? I'm absolutely dry. I I don't know." And he goes, "Well, how about Jason meets Freddy?" I go, well, how would you do that? Isn't that new line? And obviously Paramount is like, well, I want to work on that. If you're game, let's see if we can figure it out. And I went, okay, uh, could be challenging. All right. So he came back about a week later and said, no, new line and Paramount could not come to terms. So you still want to do something. And I go, well, how about this? You guys own Cheech and Chong, right? Yeah, how about Cheech and Chong meet Jason? He goes, mm, I, don't. I go, this could be funny and scary at the same time. And he goes, yeah. Well, I think the Cheech and Chong audience are not going to love the, you know, the kills and all the rest of that stuff. And, you know, the Friday audience is probably, you know, not going to go for the drug humor. Uh-huh. And yet, you know, when I brought this up about a year ago, everybody went, are you kidding? That would have been great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> too late now. But, yeah, Frank just felt that it wasn't going to work. And I said, well, give me... Give me some more time to think about it, and unfortunately, at the very least, would have been have a cool cold open. It, yeah, I, I think I don't know. I still felt that you know, like having a Costello meet Frankenstein, it would have had that sort of you know kind of irreverent approach to it. Yeah, and it, you know, the comedy would be much more obvious. But I just somehow love the you know the idea of those two guys out there as camp counselors or camping or something, and you know all the the adventures that could could occur. But still, try to have the serious tone when Jason does what he does. You know, it's like, oh shit, man. 
So, so speaking of comedy, and and you lightly touched on this in the uh, earlier, but uh, you had a, a, a short lived career as a mime. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I love that you started in filmmaking and then went to rock and roll and then went to mime school. Do you want to touch yeah. on that? I'm well, the, so... the, the interesting thing because I was the lead singer in the rock and roll band, I had heroes like James Brown, obviously Mick Jagger, Roger Daltrey of The Who, all these very physical performing, you know, uh, lead singers. And I kept trying to figure out how I could, you know, go beyond that and, you know, did crazy things on stage, you know, pre-punk days, was throwing myself into the audience, was dressing in different costumes, had, you know, you know, uh, like smoke bombs go off on stage, you know, everything that I could think of that would make the audience feel it was a show and not just a you know music uh, yeah. concert. So in that in that attempt to do different things, somebody said, Did you ever study mime? And I didn't even know what the word meant. But I kind of happened to come across something in the you know, the uh, LA Free Press, you know, newspaper back then and that said mime classes. So I checked it out and at this point everything had changed here in LA. You know, the Manson murders you know happened in sixty nine you know, many of the great rockers had died, you know, Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and the whole thing started to become very, very heavily drug and psychedelic music. And suddenly this idea of, well, going in and studying something to be a better stage performer, maybe I'll, you know, use this time to kind of reinvent myself. So that's what kind of pulled me in. But then once I got in there, I realized, you know, I love doing physical comedy, and I loved the fact that if I was to ever do movies, I would really get a sense of how to visually show things, how to, you know, like silent movies where you had, the good ones had very few title cards. And the comics, like Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, obviously Charlie Chaplin, their movies continue to, to please audiences today because there was something about the, the, the physical comedy that worked. So that kind of threw me into that, that world. And uh, I got hired by Woody Allen to work on Sleeper with him on the robot sequences. And then that led to working on Disney's The Black Hole with the robot things. And then the Jabberwocky and Alice in Wonderland. And I was constantly getting these jobs. Oh, so you were doing, like, not mime work, but uh, character like, work in character a lot of work these that films. required mime ability. Yeah, uh -huh. physical comedy ability of some sort. And, wow. And then I did about 50 commercials, I guess, as, you know, doing slapstick kinds of characters, you know, for that. But anything that could get me on the set, you know, anything where I could really, you know, learn, you know, whatever I could learn from film school, whatever I could learn from, you know, being on sets. I was in John Frankenheimer's movie Prophecy, where I had to train for three months how to run on all fours as this mutated bear, <laughs> you know. But it was, again, all this stuff that put me on sets and let me kind of hang around, uh, you know, the different departments. And Now, was that your film school, or did you also go to film school? That was basically my film school. You know, I audited classes at UCLA and USC, and then I spent a lot of time um, at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College in, in Hollywood, where I would exchange teaching comedy, physical comedy and improv for taking classes. And, you know, the teachers that came in were amazing, because like... So like Chapman, they were all industry people that were conducting the classes. You know, Lucille Ball would come in and do a class, you know, on comedy. I had, you know, wow. weeks with Rod, Rod Sterling on, you know, on writing. Wow. Uh, Sid Field, we were his guinea pigs for his book, Screenplay, which is not oh my a comedy. Oh, goodness, I, yeah. You know, 
the main, main uh, source of, of how to structure a screenplay. So it was an incredible... Talk about period. timing. I mean, yeah. it seems like you were at a place in your life where you really understood what they were saying to you and, and how best to incorporate it because you had so much sad experience already. Yeah, it was... Uh, somebody once said uh, <laughs> I had to sort of force Gump like existence where literally I just ended yeah. up being certain places where you know you didn't expect it to be what it was like being front row center at the Monterey Pop Festival and seeing Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and all these people with a who for the first time and just sitting there with your mouth open if you look at the documentary you'll see me you know with my, <laughs> with mouth, my mouth open, open. <laughs> you know having my mind blown and it was you know a number of those times where you just happen to be at some place that you were at the right age to have it you know inspire you and you kind of took this fearless, you know, position that, you know, what's going to happen? So they say no. Well, I keep working towards yeses, and that's kind of the advice I always give students is, you know, the, the word you're going to hear more than anything else is no. Why? Because they keep their job. If they say yes and it doesn't work, they get fired. So, you know, 90% of the time by saying no, they get to keep their job because very few things work. But you've got to be that person that, you know, it's one in a million that gets the opportunity. You're that one. And you have to stupidly go in there and go, I don't care how many times they hit me in the face, I'll build up scar tissue and, and keep going. But, you know, you still want to make sure that you don't lose the artist in there, the sensitive inside that you need to, you know, work from. And it's hard. You know, it's a, it's a tough business. But if you love it and, you know, you let the pain just be part of the process, you know, it's going to be good sometimes and going to be really horrible other times. But... When it's great, when it all works, when you can celebrate, you know, all together, like making a film as a group, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you have to have that fire inside of you where, like, no matter what, no matter how many no's I'm told, you wake up each morning and you think, all right, today is the day I'm yeah. going to figure out how to get this thing made or how to get this thing going. And it's something that's inside of you that you, like a story you have to tell. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, you have to feed that beast or else it just... You know, then it, that beast haunts you. And, then, and there's, there's some yeah. movies you make and there's some movies you survive. I right. Mean, <laughs> you, know, you go and you go, this, okay, this was not the actor that I thought I was hiring or they're going through a rough period or the producer for some reason, you know, really doesn't care about this show. So, you know, you're literally left on your own or budgets go from, you know, X amount of money to suddenly, you know, $100,000 is taken out for some arbitrary reason and you know, you're constantly spinning your wheels going, all right, if they give me lemons, i got to make lemonade here. i got to figure this out. It's the only choice you have. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. You can't, you can't sit there and, and shut down. You know? No, because once you're in, it's like, you know, you're in it, and uh, it's all you got is to, to find a, a way out. Yeah. Um, was, was, uh, was that really your, was that your end game, was uh, to become a film director uh, you know, when you started doing uh, a lot of the acting jobs, were you kind of like aiming to become a, yeah. a director? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, on the set was like, uh, guess what? The guy in the bear suit wants to be a director. You know? <laughs> and yet I also had the, the stupid side of me where I would say to John, you know, <laughs> John Frankenheimer, who was legendary. You know, John, I think it would be a better shot if you actually put the camera down here in front of the whole crew, mind you. You know, I just felt, yeah, everybody contributes something, right? You know, he pulled me aside, did I said, listen, Tom, it's a good idea. In fact, I'm going to use it. But in the future, if you have a good idea, come to me privately. You don't announce it in front of the whole crew. It's not how it works. <laughs> so I got my hand, you know, slapped on that one. But I did begin to realize, you know, it's a whole different thing out there in that particular world where you're spending 
God knows how much every day and maybe getting one or two shots compared to the world that I ended up going where it's like, okay, we got to get 60 setups, single camera, let's go, you know. Yeah. You, you have to have, you know, something prepared, know what you want and, you know, move as fast as you possibly can. And at the end of the day, it is an illusion. If you get the right pieces, you create an illusion for the audience. It's not everything has to be exactly, you know, perfect in the lens. You, you know, if you get enough, obviously, shots or you come up with angles that are interesting, that alone can kind of keep the, the ball in the air. And it's something over time, you know, you learn. And you learn, obviously, from your mistakes, too. Yeah, and I mean, I mean you know, it must be uh, an interesting experience to see uh, you know, bigger film directors, big, bigger studio movies, and then, uh, then you take on a studio movie, <laughs> uh, before, you know, yeah. kind of almost overnight. Yeah. And, and the, when I was doing all these network movies too, for ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, and then eventually, you know, USA network and, and lifetime and all these other things, you know, you're dealing with this huge corporate thing that, right. you know, that there's certain rules and certain framework you have to, you know, work within. And yet I kind of approached it not like I was making TV movies. It was like, okay, what would Martin Scorsese do with this particular script? You know? Yeah. Or what would Billy Wilder do in terms of the kind of comedy that this particular thing's going to have? And you're always kind of looking at the greats and the people that, you know, inspired you um, as inspiration. And if there's a shot that would be really cool in this that I'm taking from Goodfellas, but because it's in here and it's, you know, a woman's piece... You don't think Goodfellas, you just go, wow, that's cool. And it was the kind of thing where I was constantly taking whatever I had in my you know, toolbox and saying, let's put it into this so that it made the you know, TV movies a little more special. And it also held my interest that I wasn't just you know, doing you know, drama that was just there for its own sake. You know, yeah, I mean, you're kind of sharing what you love to yeah. the audience. Yeah. Uh, through the through the film as the vehicle or the TV movie, and things have changed so much. Obviously, I you know I, I saw um, I went to a premiere two nights ago of this new HBO series called Euphoria, which deals with all the troubles of teenage life in high school, the drugs, you know, sex, the use of the internet now, and all that stuff. And you know, I was going, wow, we've come a long way. You know, I did a, a movie years ago um, on AIDS. It was the first piece which basically said women can actually get AIDS. Um, was, uh, Molly Ringwald was a star of it, and Martin Landau was her father, and Lee Grant was her mother, and it was like a very you know, noble attempt to take the network and say, no, we're going to show a character putting on you know, a prophylactic, and we're going to, you know, but not, we have to do it under the sheets, obviously, yeah. and stuff. And yet I'm watching this movie the other night and watching on camera a guy putting it on with an erection, and I'm going, whoa, you never would have thought we got to that. You know, <laughs> Hello, America. Yeah. But, you know, they, it's like the, the rules have changed and, and the things that you can do now so much. And there's so many things now in, in what you, I guess we're still calling it television, but the cable movies are, are beyond features in terms of their scope. Uh, my, fun, my son is working on the Star Trek series, 15 million an episode. Wow. You know how many movies we could make on 15 million of us, <laughs> right. those of us out there in the dirt going, yeah. you know. Just That's like five out. years of work. <laughs> but yeah, one episode. And I mean, you know, the obviously True Detective and Westworld, all these things, same thing. You oh, know, yeah. There's a lot of money episode. going in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even on smaller stuff, like even, you know, Facebook, uh, uh, Apple and YouTube or, mm -hmm. or, or Amazon are kind of opening up to even like shorter form content now. Yeah. You know? And the major stars. I couldn't get a major star back in the old days. And 
you know, and it was weird because the people that I looked up to, Peter Bogdanovich, William Friedkin and stuff, I was turning down TV movies that they ended up doing or wanted to do because, you know, it was so hard to get a feature made, it still is, yeah. you know, that television was like, okay, well, I can go down and do that. But I already, you know, there's a bunch of us that just did exclusively TV movies and they trusted us. You know, they knew we could bring it in on time and on a budget and they were worried that... But at the, at the, so at the time, TV movies, they were pretty regimented, right? You'd yeah. have to have a set amount of minutes and... You had regulations where you couldn't use the F word or, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, you were really that. working within uh, kind of rigid parameters, right? Yeah, I got a note once from CBS that do we really have to hear the bang of the gun, you know, or can you do that off camera, not see the gun and hear the bang? Or, I, it, it just, yeah, I mean, it was. It was getting things deal. cleared was difficult. Yeah, yeah, bastard getting that word across, you know. Uh -huh. Bitch you couldn't use, you know. Obviously, anything that was, you know, had the Lord's name in it you couldn't use, you know. You were lucky if you could get away with, you know, you know, go, you know, gosh darn it, you know. I mean, it's, it did, make sure he says gosh. Right. But you know, and then doing all the movies in Canada, you know, we were using all Canadian actors, and that was like trying to get them not to say out, you know, out and about and things, you know. And so I just started writing the scripts and changing those words so the poor actor didn't have to fight with something that was a natural way. So you're always dealing with some sort of different, you know problem or restriction, you know, in those things. But as I said, I wanted to make sure that every morning I'd wake up and go, I'm glad I'm doing this. I love this cast. I love this crew. You know, let's just make it work. How many TV movies did you do? Was it over 30? Yeah. Um, yeah, because with the miniseries and the, t yeah, it was about 37, 38. I mean, talk about the 10,000 hours. I mean, that is a, I mean, a, a boatload of films to direct. Um, did you... Uh, kind of stay with the same crew, the same, you know, kind of build up a unit and you guys just tackled them together or was it... I tried, you know, unfortunately, uh, because of the costs, they started, you know, having the movies done in Canada and at first I could bring up my own DP, my own AD and all that and then as time went on, it became, you know, more and more, you have to use the DP there, you have to use the AD department there. And then I started getting used to those people and going, you know, I'd rather be making movies up there with them because, you know, we all know each other and can trust yeah. them kind of thing. And then suddenly we're making movies in Louisiana and then Georgia and then Salt Lake City and stuff. And, you know, you have to deal with the local crews there. Oh, so you kind of have some, uh, uh, a network of crew in each location. You start to get that, yeah. You do yeah. enough things, you know, but... You know, if you do one movie in Montreal and another one in Toronto and another one in Vancouver and, you know, another one in, in Saskatchewan, it's like, you know... It's tough to justify, yeah, yeah. You can't even fly them in, you know, within the Canada restrictions of, yeah. of, of you know, the areas that they, that they they can work in. But, yeah, it's it's a constant, you know, you have to have a vision, make sure that you get the right crew that can understand, you know, make it clear, and try to immediately work as a team and a family. Yeah, that's the that's the thing to me is that you have to feel like everybody you know is there more than just a paycheck, and that's hard because if you got a lot of work, you know, you're just sort of okay. I'll do this one, but I'm on to the next one right after this, and you try to make it you know as a director, it, you know. But that thing. yeah, but that's one of the things that's sort of a foundational component to filmmaking is just having that that vibe of where everyone at least has you know positive attitude. Yeah, and uh, and you know that's. Um, you know, you, 
if it's if it's there for a paycheck, it's like that. We talk about this on the show, but it's like almost like a cancer where if one person has that bad attitude, it really affects the entire crew. Oh yeah, and it spreads pretty quickly. It can certainly. You know, I remember in my early days because um, they they would I would say things like, "Well, I want to do this long dolly shot." And it's like, "Do you?" I go, "Yeah, okay." Um, it's going to take a little while to set it up. That's okay. I'll wait. You know, forty five fifty. An hour and a half later, they're still setting Dolly Track, and I realized they didn't really want to do this, and they dragged that out much longer than they needed to. And so it, 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 I had to start to change up my game, you know, and basically say, you know, oh, it's going to take about, the, oh, will it? Okay, let me help. It's yeah. like, no, 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 you're done. Well, we've only got like 20 minutes. Um, okay, we can do that. And you just, you know, you start to realize if they are smarter than you are, you know, you can end up having to pay for those decisions. And lots of times people that have been doing it a long time didn't trust a young director coming up and saying, I want to do That's the hard part, I feel like, is when you don't really know somebody new on set, you don't, and it's it's tough to build, not, it's tough to make stuff without a relationship, uh, an existing relationship. And there's always going to be somebody that ends up being the target. You know, it might be the hair person, it might be, you know, second camera assistant, it could be, you know, somebody that ends up being the butt of the jokes and all this stuff. It's weird. It's like, you know, somehow everybody needs to find somebody that can, they can pick on and be the, you know, the source of the humor, which is never right or fair, but it just seems like that's, you know, that's the way it can go down. Um, Did you learn uh, uh, any uh, any tidbits while doing you know like the this massive amount of uh, of you know doing the thirty films or so? Did you learn a workaround you know when dealing with you know crew that you didn't really know that you were kind of walking onto a set and how you would approach it and and uh, and sort of gain the uh, the trust of the crew? It all, you know, it's sort of like if, if, if a kid was raised learning that discipline was being spanked or being yelled at or whatever, if you try to approach that person with love and kindness, it's like that's not, you know, the way they respond. And you don't, you can't really know that. I mean, as a director, you're also trying to be a psychologist and go, okay, what is going to get this done, you know, and because this person has to do it. Most people, I'd say, in general, do respond to kindness, to, you know, respect, being, you know, being asked their opinion. You know, does this seem to make sense to you? Yeah, whatever you want. No, no, what do you want? I mean, does this work for you? Because, you know, and I'd love when somebody will collaborate in that term and say, well, I think it would be better over here. Why? I don't know. It's like, well, then let's do it over here, because unless you have a really good reason. Yeah. You know, yeah, okay, all right, all right, you know, or they'd say, well, I'm over here because I think this low angle, you know, you're going to get a piece of this. I mean, great, thank you, you know, best idea, love it, you know. And I mean, I get great ideas from craft service sometimes because they're sitting back there objectively watching this and going, absolutely. Wouldn't it be funnier if, you know, and everybody went, you know, and I, and I learned that thing from Frankenheimer, not saying anything, but I encourage it because it's like, Sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees, and it's great when somebody says something that you go, "I didn't think of that." That's yeah, it's like a un, it's like a gift that came out of nowhere. Right. Or, and if you can't use it, you you know you don't use it. You say thank you. Don't stop coming up with ideas, but that's not exactly what I'm going for in this. But thank you for you know. But I think you touched on something that uh, makes a lot of sense because, you know, being kind and showing love and and being really super positive. 
Um, there's definitely people that don't want that. <laughs> you know? um, that's not the only MO to having a really good set. There's yeah. some people that just want things communicated uh, effectively. They want facts. They want things in order. They want to be told direction yeah. clearly. Um, and, 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 and you have to learn to respect their workflow and and instead of trying to sell them on, hey, let's just we're, we're buddies. Yeah, uh, it's it's a more of a uh, an understanding of the the nature of who they are in terms of um, their relationship with you. Yeah, they they have a particular discipline and they have a particular you know area of comfort. And when you mm-hmm. ask them to work outside of their comfort zone, and it's the same thing with actors, it can get difficult because you can end up going into these discussions and things that do nothing but eat up you know production time so you try to meet I certainly do with all the keys and things ahead of time and try to get a sense of the person and the kind of stuff that they've done and be able to say I saw that movie that you did like four years ago that you know that was incredible you know I, I just loved it you know the the sound was that all shot you know all, mm-hmm. all that sound on on you know the set or was that any of that looped or whatever and show that you're interested in what they've done before. And it's suddenly, it's like they have an attitude of, well, great, you know, you've done some homework on me. I, I feel like, you know, you're respecting me. Yeah. Things like that, you know, certainly help. But there are certainly people that are grumpy, that are doing it for a paycheck. You cannot tell them that this is going to be the greatest thing ever, uh, because to them it isn't. It's just another movie in a series of movies. But to make them feel that they at least are respected in what they do or and and what they're bringing to the film and don't move on without thanking them you know for the you know for the setup you know and move on to the next thing it, this is a lot of work beyond just the vision you know but it is a family that constantly needs some sort of affirmation and when they when they turn against you as, as lots of times crews can it becomes really difficult to get the work done you know, and it's going to be done, you know, half-heartedly. You'll get it done, and some people say, "I don't care as long as it gets done." Right, because I think be a, there's 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 like an inherent pressure on the director to have complete control over not only the set but on the the rhythm and the pace of the day, mm-hmm. knowing what you want, knowing what's possible, yeah. knowing what you can and can't do, and having a crew really say, "Well, I." Be- trust know that they trust you that the work they're going to be doing isn't going to be a, you know a waste of time because you're like spending too much time on one shot and then cramming in another shot yeah. or then trying to do six pages in the last two hours and asking them to do the impossible but rather they really have built trust because they um have aligned with your general daily workflow yeah and and i think getting the crew to to align with with your general daily workflow is the challenge. Yeah. Well, try to get off that first shot as early and quickly as you can so everybody gets the fact that, okay, we're moving. You know, we're not going to sit and discuss this for two hours and then they're going to go off to makeup and hair for another hour and a half. And, you know, because everybody's energy goes down and no matter how many cups of coffee, it's so like, I can't believe we're still waiting to get this first shot. If there's some way of getting something simple, and sometimes I used to do, you know, inserts or establishing shots, anything. Establishing shots you know, are always great. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, that you can just get the day going. So it's like, okay. Or even get the camera moving. inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And production loves that to see on the production report that they got the first shot, you know, less yeah. than an hour into, you know, call and things like that. 
definitely have that's always a gr- that's always a great momentum builder yeah is to get that first like insert shot or a stopping shot off yeah because yeah. you're always chasing the sunlight no matter what you know sure. it's always complications and people take too long getting back from lunch and you know there's always that thing of all right I, and I, I tell this now also to students is you know you have your a plan but always have that b plan in the back pocket that if something goes wrong you know these five shots could be two shots you know? right and yeah. Those things that, but you don't go in saying that until you get to that point where we've just lost an hour over some. That's something. That's something we do at the end of each day. We try to look at the shot list for tomorrow and yeah. then sort of uh, decide what are the bonus shots and what are the core shots and right. really go into the next day having that game plan because yeah. if you don't have yeah it, yeah it can get ugly. The directors, yeah. you know, uh, prepared and and willing to you know make compromises if necessary. And that, you know, I've become, you know, producers, you know, were the enemy so much of the time. But I've come to, you know, have the reverse that if you can get a producer who truly is there to, to help support the director, troubleshoot as the you know, show goes on, you know, make sure that the communication, is there anything I can do? How can I help? Whatever, you know, as, a part, as opposed to just being somebody in a chair sitting around the monitor going, the crew, everybody starts to wonder why, why, what, you know, what are they, well, they're actually the, you know, actor's manager and they got a producing credit because we couldn't get the actor. But they, yeah, they have no idea who the, who the assistant cameraman is. (laughs) But, you know, they, it's why sometimes smaller crews are, are nicer and smaller, you know, above the line people, you know, but it's a business that costs a lot of money and you've got to have ways of saving it and, you know, and a lot of that means somebody's going to get a title that, you know, that they don't, deserve or earn but you know so be it yeah you gotta whatever it takes um did you when you're working with film school students do you guys discuss uh how much of camaraderie is a is a focus huge amount i mean we try to get we try to actually certainly i do you know say is there any problems that is going on now with you know your early discussions your pre-production stuff is there anybody that you feel like is not you know, on the team or, or and why, um, you know, ha- let's see if we can figure out a way around that. And then also after shooting, it's like, okay, who is great? Who could you recommend? So that the other filmmakers go, okay, I got a good report for that person. I, I should seek them out. And it's, you're, you're constantly looking for those people that you can mesh with and, and be supportive. You know, going back to Rocksteady Row, it was just great to see this team of, of, filmmakers that had all worked together for a number of years at film school so they all knew each other and had each other's backs and wanted it to work because they you know they were family and it's hard to throw a bunch of strangers together and get that you know when it happens it's it's wonderful I mean I've had some shows where you know grips are hugging cameras guys and everybody's like you know you know this bonding and and just really enjoying the experience then I've had other shows where I've been on that where the crew was brought from all these different places and they just didn't know each other, didn't really like each other. You know, if the show had was plagued with trouble. I had this one Stephen King movie that I did, Sometimes They Come Back. And the very first day, you know, it snowed six inches when there wasn't supposed to be any snow in Kansas. And <laughs> so it's only day one we're behind the day, you know, and it just took off like that. Somebody had got hurt, the transportation department left, left everything from the day before at that location. 
it was just. Played. I mean, there's no way to win when you're. Yeah. You don't know anyone. You're dealing with snow in Kansas. And I can I can only imagine every department is yeah. just like host. And, you know, and it was you know we we shot a whole incredible you know emotional sequence with this older actor who had had a heart attack a week before and, and shouldn't have done the movie, but he insisted this was he had to do this and uh-huh. cue cards and everything, only to find out that they used the wrong stock, you know that they shot oh, it on on film stock. Was, yeah, film yeah. stock. Remember those good old that's pretty, that's part of a camera, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> and you know, we suddenly had all this blue, green, you know, film, and we couldn't go back and reshoot. And oh God! Miracle, we were able to color time it in such a way and color time some of the previous shot and uh, previous. And sort of blended. Yeah, so it blended in and uh-huh. you know, could save it, but it just seemed like this show was just plagued with with one issue after another and. But at the end of the day, it's like one of my beloved pieces, and it had a lot of emotional and things in there that uh, I didn't see as I was doing it, but somehow... Kind of That's always uh, something that amazes me, is the story of the like, the like the way you see a movie that you made, as opposed to how other people see it. <laughs> what they'll never know. Exactly. What went into making this. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, you never know how these things are going to come out if they're going to come out if they're going to end up on a shelf if they're going to have one night where they show on cbs and then they're forgotten monday morning i mean there's all these things that you can't control but you can control the set and try to make it as you know as wonderful of of an experience as possible so people go i'd like to work with this guy again you know or i'd love to collaborate with that dp again he was great he was very you know, respectful to me in terms of what he was, you know, what he wanted, or a production designer that came in and was like, you know, let's talk about the color palette and how you're lighting and things, so that you begin to see that, yeah, a, a bunch of artists can get together and make something, you know, great out of something that really, you know, they didn't even expect it to be great. They just wanted to get it done. You're right. Yeah. Use what they have and just yeah. get it done. I've always looked at um, making films as you sort of work for the story mm-hmm. or that's the boss. Like you want to serve the story. Yeah. It's whatever you can. And Absolutely. I always try to find other crew members that, uh, if I'm going to hire them, that they're going to have that same sort of, uh, passion to do this, the film service and not just make a paycheck. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's definitely hard giving the variables of time, money and limitations of availabilities. And, you know, so you can't always have that, that perfect, you know, group and, um, but it seems like you've developed kind of good, uh, philosophies on, uh, approaching, you know, each crew member individually and sort of building up a rapport with them to really effectively serve the story at the end of the day. But, you know, it seems like with a lot of experience, you've kind of learned that, um, it's not always going to be easy. Yeah. And there's these things that come out of left field on you too. I, I did this one film and had a DP who, was really renowned and incredible work that he's done and our whole prep was amazing and we were referring to you know paintings and Edward Harper things and trying to get these looks and really I was like so excited and it was an important movie in that it was going to be difficult because I'm directing Craig T. Nelson and Kirk Douglas as a father oh, wow. and son and Kirk I knew was going to be you know difficult because he's a major movie star yeah I mean and not difficult in terms of as a person just his presence yeah yeah and the demands and it was you know he he really demanded a lot of of attention and you know and you know that was a whole other story but the thing is is that this particular DP um, like 
few days into it, suddenly he just lost all interest. I don't know if something happened personally in his life or whatever, but he, you know, the, the, the hustling and the, the stuff we started losing at the end of the day because you know, things weren't prepared and stuff. And the you know, producers came in and said, you know, we're going to have to replace him. And I'm going, I, I, we've got some, he, maybe he's just going to go through. He said, we can't wait for him to get out of his thing. This is it. We're bringing up another guy. And it was somebody who had really done just regular, low-budget television stuff for years. And I was terrified that this thing was going to just look bland. But he came in. He looked at the dailies. I told him what I wanted. And he did an amazing job. In fact, even got uh, a nomination from the ASC you know, for his work on the show. Wow, how far along was he into the into the film? That was probably not even a week, you know, that, that we had to Oh, so he did the majority. He did the bulk of it, yeah. Yeah, so. that was, bar, bar, uh, bar none, the craziest thing I've ever done was I had to fire a DP. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I think it was the second day of filming, and uh, it was the director's mentor or someone, he, like an older the DP who just didn't really want to do it, and you yeah. kind of get that vibe, but had a great relationship with the director and and the crew. Like we're, they were all gonna walk, yeah. <laughs> but it got to that point where you're like, uh, you, you know, it's not gonna work, and yeah. so, uh, and then you know, for, in my case, the a new DP came in, and the rest of the shoot went great. Yeah, you know, but that's but it's an amazing. It's been about three times where you know the DP had to be replaced on one of my shows. That's got to be so was scary. Not something that I wanted because I didn't like him or whatever. Especially if you've, you know, it's like dating somebody and then the marriage starts and suddenly what the hell happened? You know? Oh yeah. Suddenly there's some button that got pushed or something happened. The trigger that yeah. yeah. And it's just way too much money to sit there and wait for somebody to come out of. And such a core position. I mean, you know, it really dictates like several departments. Yeah. You know, yeah, and that's and that's a really frightening position to be in as a director because he's kind of like your counterpart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, everything that you're saying has to go through him and him through his team, and you know, to get it to look the way you know you guys envisioned it. Same thing with losing an AD. I mean, the fact uh-huh. that if show's not moving along, you know, they start to target you know first me, then the DP, and then go after the AD if it looks like he's not scheduling, you know, the thing correctly. Yeah, had a few times where you know. That was also very difficult, but whoever comes in has you know fresh blood and you know they want to prove that they can do this and you know save the day. That's one of the nice things about like uh, our, uh, with filmmaking is it it really shows in the production report like what's not working, what's what on the in the budget line item has started to inflate or yeah. where we losing money. You can really by looking at the budget as you're, you know, seven to ten days in, you can really analyze, like, what the issues are. Mm-hmm. And as a producer, I've always really tried to work with the director and just discuss how we can improve on those line items um, and then kind of keep the train going. Yeah. Do you have, do you, is that a similar process to you? Do you work with producers in terms of, like, kind of, you know, figuring out, like, what's not working on the set and trying to improve things day to day? I, I wish there were more producers like that because a lot of it, it really, they, they don't look at the overall, that what's going on. It's just like, why are we behind, you know? <laughs> and, it's, you know, and of course, everybody's pointing at one another. To, right. Well, well, this took too long and the actor took too long to come out of makeup. And, you know, he, you know, he couldn't get focus on this thing. And, it, you know, it took forever, you know, and the director really wanted that shot, you know, or, 
the DP, it's like, you know, I, I don't know what happened. They parked the grip truck too far away. You need to talk to locations. Those guys yeah. just are screwing us here. I mean, you know, everybody blames everybody else. Right. But the producer's job, obviously, is to try to, you know, filter out the stuff that's just excuses and what, you know, really does it get down to. Yeah. And sometimes people do have to feel like either they care and they're going to work harder or that, you know, somebody's going to get fired if, you know, if you don't start to, you know, pick up your pace and, you know, do something. But it's like the bigger the shows, to me, the slower they can go. Um, because it's oh, it's just more people. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's too many, uh, too many people almost. Yeah. It's like this, it's such a like to move eighty people or hundred people. It's such a function from shot to shot. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, why it, it could be so much fun when you're working with, you know, a rock steady row, and it's a you know not a massive budget. And you're yeah. working with people that you really respect and appreciate, and that feeling that's some of the best filmmaking possible. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I know. There's something. That... I think it's attributed to Francis Ford Coppola the, uh, that, you know, m movies are not going to truly be an art until it gets down to the simplicity of a pencil and a piece of paper. Everybody can own a pencil and a piece of paper, but not everybody's an artist. And we've got to that point with cell phones, you know, the iPhone cameras, the capability that students bring stuff into me and I go, what the hell did you shoot that on? My iPhone? Are you shitting me? <laughs> I mean, it looks like a David Fincher feature. You know, they shot with available light at night on campus or whatever. And it looks as good as anything you see in the feature. And it's like, why not be able to make something like that and, and put it out there? And then the question becomes good performances and, of course, story. You know, yeah. the key thing. Yeah. But they can make things look really great. And if it's like all you have... That's got to be mind-blowing to someone like you who, yeah. you know, was... Uh, 1986, uh, when Jason Lives came out, I believe it was 86. 86, yeah. Uh, is a little bit of time ago, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long ago, and how much technology has changed or yeah. from then until now. It's yeah. unbelievable. I mean, the fact that you can pull a camera out of your pocket and shoot at the level of David Fincher. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, like as people say, it, like, it, it depends what you do with it. It's just so much, if you keep it simple enough and you get it about, you know, here's a cool idea, here's the story that we can take from that idea, now let's get some decent actors to, you know, because that's what we're going to be focusing on. And then the actual look and stuff, if you're inventive and keep it simple enough, you can make it look incredibly good. And all these guys, you know, need calling cards, you know, when you go off, you know, out there. And it's mm -hmm. like, why should we trust that you know how to do this? Or, you know, can you do a whole feature in this regard? Well, if you've worked on enough shows, I know when my son graduated from Dodge, you know, he had two pages single-spaced of all the things he had done. So he was ready, you know, to jump in and kind of going to go any place. And he was very fortunate that the first show that he got was Drive. Oh, but wow. He went from all the collaboration of Dodge to a DP and a director who did nothing but fight through the whole process and producers trying to keep them, you know, at bay. And they shot things twice, you know, many times. And, yeah. And, you know, Ryan Gosling, you know, brought in the director, so he was going to, you know, side with him and the and the. The DP was a really great DP, so there was like this, well, it's a great idea, but it's two very diverse ways of, you know, approaching a particular thing. And my son was like, is this the way it really is? <laughs> I said, not quite that extreme, but yeah, it, it can go that way. It can go that way. Day, the movie was incredible, you know. Yeah. People didn't see any of that. Yeah, know? classic example of like uh, the filmmakers look at the movie probably very differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, when I when I came, moved out to L.A. and I didn't go to film school, but a, around 2000, the, the talk was like film schools were kind of moving away from film cameras mm-hmm. and going into digital cameras. And there is, I don't know if the controversy, but it was definitely a conversation of okay. like, do you do you do you teach the old form of filmmaking or do you harness this new technology and encourage students to go on that path? And and I guess at some point around that time period, there's probably a sea of change with film with film schools. And uh, what's your what's your uh, feelings on? Uh, teaching students now, just filmmaking, looking towards the future? Well, it's interesting because when I started at Chapman, that was like the first year that they actually were seriously talking about ending, you know, the 16 millimeter thing. Yeah. You know, the labs were closing, you know, the, there was great deals to be had at, at, uh, at Photocam. Oh, buying, like, you know, short stocks. And yeah. Was desperate. Yeah. And they were giving away film stock. And yeah. I'm walking into this going, you know, well, I'm a filmmaker. Film is the way I grew up. This is, you know, if they never get a chance to ever work with it again, wouldn't it be great to have at least here get a chance to make something? I mean, a film, maybe a film class is just for 16 millimeter or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And what kind of happened was is that they sort of kind of pushed it aside and made the students, you know, if, that, if this you want to do, then here's the limitations you're going to have. And I think a lot of them kind of went in not realizing that, how expensive it can be to try to do a number of takes where the freedom you have of just rolling digital, you know, and you keep going and you just figure it out in post, you know, that was no longer possible with film. But what I did was able to convey was like, you really got to do your homework. You really got to do a rehearsal. So when you start rolling film, you better hope that first take is something that's usable and the second one to back it up, you know, and see if something else happened. And it puts a whole different pressure on, you know, making the stuff count, uh, which I think is great training, you know, to, to have. Even though in the real world, now it's only like the big, big, you know, the Quentin Tarantinos, you know, and, and Nolan and those guys that are still shooting on But film. they shoot film like it's digital. <laughs> yeah, because they got the budgets, you know, to right. do that. So, yeah. you know, what you don't in film school, which, fine, then take that restriction and say, all right, let me try to make this really count, you know? Yeah, and it's such a shame because there's a lot of filmmakers that I meet with when we talk about doing movies together, and they are really gung-ho, and like this one we're going to do on film for under a million. Mm-hmm. And there's just, unfortunately, really no practical solution to filming under a million dollars with film because there's so many variables that you're going to spend money on that that takes away from something else you would spend on that. Yeah. You're spending all your money on the look, yeah. and it's you know kills set decorating or another department. And it's it's unfortunate because the yeah, the world isn't set up for it anymore. Yeah. yeah, if that's really a priority because that's something that you just have to do in your life, you know, then something else is going to suffer. Something else will suffer. Yeah, yeah, that's the unfortunate reality. Um, and so, uh, are there you know moving forward? Are there other things that you're developing now? What's what's sort of your interest in terms of what you want to make? Well, I'm, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I stopped doing TV movies, I guess, about nine years ago. Okay. So, and um, because the whole world sort of, you know, dried up. And the only reason, and this is the God's truth, I started doing TV movies, well, actually two reasons. One was I had an enormous, after I did Stephen King movie and that was shown at CBS, they suddenly said, well, what else do you want to do? We're going to give you this big miniseries to do. 
And I didn't want to do a miniseries. I had no interest in it. But I thought, I'm going to go in and, and just take up the challenge. And it became the biggest movie of that year. So suddenly I went from, you know, Mr. Low-Budget Horror Filmmaker to the top three, you know, television movie directors. Wow. They were being given these, you know, huge movies, you know, $8 million miniseries on global warming, the AIDS movie that I mentioned with Molly Ringwald, that, you know, things that really had, you know, big stars and, you know, and for television, you know, big budgets. And so I looked at this going, you know, I can make one, at least two, sometimes three movies in a year as opposed to one movie every three years. Yeah. Because you know, the process takes so long, you know, in making a film. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to go in there and do like my early heroes, you know, the John Fords and the Howard Hawks and Michael Curtis. I mean, I think I think Casablanca was like his 50th movie or something. Wow. You know, before he got <laughs> but, you know, you've learned your craft by doing it. And they're yeah. given an opportunity to, to do it. And yes, there's restrictions and stuff, but there's also a real chance to grow and try things. And I made sure that every movie I did, the next one would be a different genre. If I did true crime, the next one would be a comedy. You know, if I did a Christmas movie, then the next thing would be, you know, a political thriller. I mean, so I got a chance to really kind of go and do all these different things, which you know, was wonderful. So now that that world sort of has stopped, we're actually now it's morphed into the Netflix right. things, the limited, you know, series. Yeah, the binge-watching series. You know, all of us guys from that world are kind of, you know, the forgotten ones. So I went, okay, you dust yourself off. You go, okay, what else can you do? Well, let's go back to low-budget filmmaking. Yeah. So I've been writing scripts, you know, in that, in that vein. I've been trying to find things that can be done, you know, for a very limited budget. At the same time, you know, my biggest reputation is with the Friday the 13th thing, and I sort of avoided, you know, doing another one of those with the excuse, which is true, that I just want to have a, a good idea, something that can be fresh and different. Finally, I come up with that about a year ago and started, you know, putting the script together only to run into, you know, this lawsuit that's going on. But I have, you know, a script that's actually out there, you know, in, in the marketplace. Uh -huh. But we're kind of in this wait and see what's going to happen. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but at least I feel, all right, that was, you know, one of those bucket list things. I said I was going to do it. I finally got a good idea. This is something. It's out in the marketplace. Yeah. It's out you there. you never know. See where, where it leads. But it's like you have to keep creating. You have to keep, you know, doing something. Uh, as a joke, about two years ago, I did. Uh, I took my mind training and knew that Halloween was, you know, they were remaking, you know, uh, yeah. Halloween. So I did Mike the Mime. So I put together a whole <laughs> act as Michael Myers out on the street doing, you know, Oh, that's stuff. amazing. And I had, you know, a couple of my Chapman students shoot the thing for me, you know, in the center there uh -huh. <laughs> of Orange. And, you know, at the stage there at the school. And kind of put that out there and ended up, you know, playing the big... Uh, convention that they had in you know, Pasadena as Mike the Mine. Wow. So, and then I sort of just let that go. Yeah. Know? But I could get up there and do an hour show of doing that and uh -huh. it was sort of fun to go back and do something I hadn't done. And you do a whole YouTube channel of different horror characters. Yeah. It's just, it's about being creative, you know. Yeah. It's about feeling like you get up in the morning. It's like, what can I do today that would be, you know, cool? Well, I different. think that's the thing, you know, uh, is about reinventing yourself in mm -hmm. Hollywood. As the market changes, I feel like filmmakers have to change or have to... Uh, kind of keep calibrating with the marketplace, or else you're sort of, st you know, stuck in a time period. Yeah. Because the it's not only the marketplace, but it's really the audience that is constantly looking for that new thing, or they're into something new, and yeah. you just, you know, it's uh, it's a fun game, but it moves very fast. 
It does, and the powers that be, I mean, they much are, are much more open to young, up-and-coming filmmakers who haven't had things that haven't worked, you know? Yeah. Thing. If you do 40-something movies, are all of them going to be great? No. Are there going to be a couple that are standouts? Yeah, you know, by love and God's blessing, yeah, that actually have worked. <laughs> 80 people painting on the same Right, the gods of Hollywood, worked, yeah. You know, and people actually, you know, came and saw it. But, you know, when you do as much as, as, you know, you do when you're in television and or if you're just doing small shorts or whatever, you know, some work, some don't. But if you're coming out of film school and you've got a cool short and you've got an idea for a script or you've got a script, it's like, let's, let's give them a shot. We'll surround them with other people that, you know, we feel comfortable with. And, and I think that's great because I was part of that too. It's like, you know, get those old farts out of the way. We know, yeah. We know what we're doing. You know, right. Let's get in, you know, and each generation should be doing that. And I... Some of my peers, you know, hate the fact that, you know, people are coming up and basically will work for free. It's like, weren't we those people at one point? Yeah. I just love cinema enough that, as I tell my students, blow me away. Show me something I haven't seen before. Take a risk, you know. Go go for something that you go, this is really crazy. But if it doesn't work, so what? It's, the, you know, this is the time to experiment and try something. And if it does work, or if you see somebody else come up with a great idea and you go... I'm going to steal that one day. I don't know where or when, but, you know, but I'll give you credit. But isn't it. that amazing now that you can almost pilot something to the world by just shooting something and then uploading it on YouTube or uploading yeah. it on a social media platform and it could take fire or it could not. But yeah. Suddenly you have a deal over some little vine that you made you know, that everybody happened to watch. <laughs> but that's all they know from is like, did, did it seem like it's been proven in some capacity? That's why we get so many franchises. Well, we know these Marvel things work. You know, we know right. these DC comics. We will put all the money into that. You know, we. we Although know I'm Star really Trek depressed that uh, Swamp Things only uh, got canceled after one episode. It did. I just found out. Yeah. I didn't hear that. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's not on Facebook. Who knows if it's true, but. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the you know the bodies drop quickly in this business. It does. It's like you know where where is the heat? You know we're always always looking for the heat. And yeah. You, you go and you see these things and go well, I wouldn't have done it that way, but you know you can't argue with an audience that comes to see it. It's, you know that's just kind of the way it is. So I yeah, mean, I love I still love the indie world. I still love foreign movies. You know where you can see somebody else's voice showing you a different way to look at the world. And that, to me, is, you know, so inspiring. Yeah. You know? But if I see you've got all the money, and you know, you're Michael Bay, and you're just loading the screen full of all this stuff, it's like, yes, there's a definitely a huge audience for that. But for me personally, I just don't connect with it. You know, the human aspect of it, you know, sometimes gets lost in all that. Right. And that's usually... It's just manufactured. Yeah. Yeah, to me, yeah. But, uh, you know, that was one of the things that I loved about Slamdance was uh, the shorts programs. Mm -hmm. um, none of the shorts were really, you know, big budgets or, you know, that big of a budget per se. You know, it's more about just getting a camera and, and having your, a voice. Yeah. And it's so inspiring to see all these, like talented people that knew they had a voice and they went out and made something that maybe the production value wasn't great, but the story was certainly there. It was well-directed. You know, they've taken people that uh, uh, were probably not the best actors, but, like, really made it into some kind of story. That that must be amazing as a as uh, someone who works within a film school to find those new voices yeah. and harness those new voices and see how they can can really shape that voice into something that is, uh, you know, a great film. Or and, you know, story. one of my biggest thrills, and because it doesn't always happen like this, but I had a student this past year, and she was probably one of the most shy, insecure 
you know, students I've ever had. I mean, so much so that she came up to me before the school year and said, I'm going to have a real problem getting in front of people and talking about stuff and things. I just, I really, I, 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 I just, you know, and I said, yeah. well, we'll figure out something. We'll and, you know, and she was, uh, after every assignment, she'd come up, is this okay? Is this working? And, and it was like, great. I mean, you're, you're, you really are nailing this. Okay. And she still, you could see in her eyes, she still wasn't sure. So she went and shot this, you know, short thing for the, the intermediate production class. And it, it was fine. It was basically, you know, husband and wife and a mistress, you know, yeah. thing with not a particularly, you know, twist of an ending or anything. But, and she showed it to the class and it went, yeah, okay, that's good. Let's, you know, keep working on it, see if there's some edits you can do. And she went into the editing room and just completely flipped the timelines, you know, so you were jumping around from yeah. where the guy left and when he came back and things. And it was fucking brilliant. I mean, yeah. it was like, I went, my God, how, you know, just, well, I just thought I'd try that. And it's like, you tripped into greatness here. I, I, you know, and she changed her major into editing for this next semester <laughs> because she suddenly decide, you know, decided and realized that she has kind of a gift to look at something, you know, take, take the box of crayons and doing something different with it when yeah. she went into the editing room. And that's, to me, a wonderful thing to see where they actually discover, you know, an ability that they have. And yeah. Maybe they go back and direct one day or produce. I don't know. You're going to end up having so many careers. But watching guys. people that were like clicks for them. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and lots of times you're going to be working in wardrobe, you know, for a couple of years before you get your script. There's somebody there on the set that gets it to somebody. You know, you do what you got to do. Yeah, you know, absolutely. department that you work, work in that you feel, you know, comfortable. Or I love that. I love costumes, you know. Or, you know, I love being around camera. So that's all part of it. All right, go ahead, sorry. All right. Um, but yeah, it, it's like, I think, as I constantly say, try production design. Look, because there's not yeah. that many great production designers out there. See if it's something you, you know, aspire to. Obviously, editing is something that a lot of people are afraid of, and then they get in there and they start to realize, God, there's an awful lot of control in remaking the movie in the editing room or making a, the movie far better. You know, so a lot of it is just sort of like uh, guiding them until they really can uh, figure out their strengths. Yeah. Because yeah. directing is difficult in that, not that the directing itself, but getting that position and really kind of knowing enough that you're not going to get taken advantage of when you're out there and or you freak out when you realize you don't have the answers. And yeah, an actor friend of mine, we were on set, and he said a lot of people, you know, when they are growing up, they see movies, they think actors, director, and that's really all they know. Yeah. So they come out to L.A. thinking, I'm going to be an actor, or I'm going to be a director. And those are really the only two things. But when you get into it, you start really kind of like drill down and realize, well, maybe it's being a production designer is what I really love, or maybe... You know, being a background artist, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just really kind of keying in on what you love of filmmaking. But you can't really learn that until you start the process or go to film school. Yeah. yeah. And all those all those experiences all help. All, you know, it's like anything that you love that's trivia. You know, somebody say, well, that's a waste of your time. It's like, no, it isn't. Because ultimately, it's all going to be what you will respond to and what you love that keeps you going, you know. And you find at some point you're doing something and it's suddenly something that you loved. You can make that you know, an aspect of that work within the, the creative process that you're working in. So the more things that you can touch upon, and which is one of the great things about film school, if you really 
make the connections and go to the different departments and try different jobs and don't you know say well I'm not going to pull cable because I'm a director it's like no pull the cable so you understand what that is so when you ask somebody to do something or when you walk away in the set and they have to spend another hour wrapping up you know what that's like and you can thank them you know at the end of the day for their their contribution yeah absolutely yeah um I, I just think that's one of the, the key components is really just drilling down and filling out what your strengths are and then also at the same time understanding what everyone else's strengths are. Yeah, it, um, it really helps. And, you know, that way you can kind of be complimentary without having to fake it, you know, that you really took the time and said, no, you're really good at this. Yeah, you know? and it seems like you kind of went, uh, and that was sort of your process from uh, being a musician to... Uh, mime school to making just going out and making your own film to doing you know uh, movies as a character actor and then directing your own film you kind of learned along the way what what made it all work for you in terms yeah. of how you make your movies and then you know I, I've always been a great believer in the afterlife and you know there's things there's experiences that I've had over the years where it's like it's not quite easy to explain logically what just happened here you know and that has fascinated me to the point where uh, a number of years ago I bought a crypt at the Hollywood Forever Mausoleum that has instructions on the crypt plate of what to do once I'm gone because to me the show goes on you know? <laughs> and if you come to this place after I'm gone I've set this up in such a way that maybe you'll see feel hear something but it's all I have to do all this sort of paranormal setup to that for that to eventually you know, pay off because to me it's not over when the coffin lid closes, you know, and I want to leave behind obviously films and things that I've done, but I also want to leave something that we don't quite understand yet, you know, uh, that still, I mean, the same way you hold up a cell phone and go, how am I seeing all this stuff? I mean, 20 years ago, un it would just be unbelievable. Yeah. You could not do it. Yeah. And our brains are far beyond that. So there's a lot of stuff that I think that we still are yet to discover. And I sort of want to just be part of that early experiment if that is, can happen. So for me, it's not over when it's over. You know, it's still, it still continues. I love that. And, and, that, and that's exactly what, uh, what, what we talked about in terms of like not taking a no. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep being hopeful and, and excited and, and, and love it and passionate yeah. and um, keep doing things yeah, and keep doing, doing things. things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Tom. This was a, a, a great, great time with My you. Pleasure. And I, I really appreciate uh, you making your way down out here to Calabasas and being part of this. And, uh, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It really was enjoyable. Thanks. Awesome. Well, this is another episode of tales from the crew and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>